uh, his campaign. I mean, he's the first president who did not serve in the military or in a government post prior to running for president. So that's another unique quality of this election that made it surreal. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of Republicans who wanted to support him were thinking, ah, there's no way he'd have a chance at actually winning. He's just kind of fun because he's attacking political correctness and, you know, uh, throwing the bombs that I wish I could throw. Right. That's the kind of thing, you know. That's Gleaves Whitney, director of the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University and producer of this podcast. Today, we hear from Gleaves about the results of the presidential election. Gleaves considers what a Trump presidency might mean and what it could look like, as well as how the Democratic and Republican parties will both have to change significantly to adjust to the new political and cultural landscape. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. The election of Donald J. Trump to the presidency has shocked much of the nation, including the bulk of the mainstream media. There's already been a great deal of commentary about how Trump pulled off this upset and what it might mean, but nothing, especially the future, seems all that clear. Today we hear from Gleaves Whitney about Trump's victory, as well as about the role that the Rust Belt played in that victory. We talk a bit about how Trump's win fits into the international movement toward nationalism and anti-globalism, as well as what it means that Americans have elected into the nation's highest office a man who has, both on and off the record, made misogynistic and racist remarks, often about other Americans. Gleaves also considers how both parties will have to regroup and, to a great degree, remake and restructure themselves. Finally, we discuss what the pursuit of common ground will have to look like in the near future. All that and more coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Well, Gleaves, thanks uh, so much for talking with me and coming back on the podcast to talk about this really momentous election. Thank you, Joe. So last Tuesday, Donald Trump, for those who, who somehow don't know, Donald Trump shocked much of America, including almost all of the liberal media establishment and the pollsters and the mainstream commentators by winning the election and securing his place as the next president of the United States. Uh, Gleaves, how did, how did he manage this upset? Well, first of all, we've got to say that the true victor on election day was alcohol. <laughs> oh, gee. is that the case? Well, I think that a lot of people either were so down in the dumps right. by the result that they were driven to drink or That's they were true. so elated with surprise that they also were driven to drink those, either way. Those uh, numbers would be interesting to investigate, actually. You're right about that. Absolutely. And did you notice also that it was as though nature itself was trying to help us see what is happening? Because in all the nights uh, from the Election Day forward, the moon has been spectacularly mm -hmm. large, mm -hmm. closer to the Earth than it's been since 1948. So we've been getting all of this illumination in the darkness. <laughs> so I'm I'm hoping that I'm part of the illumination and not the darkness. <laughs> but you good. ask a good question, Joe. You ask a good question. How did he manage this upset? Well, I think one way he did it was by not being ideological. Donald Trump is neither really a strong Republican nor a strong Democrat. He as you know, he uh, he sent a lot of money to both Dems and Repubs over the years. He also had a finger on the pulse of the American people. He sensed where people were. You know, he talked to a lot of people. He understood the anger, the resentment against the establishment, and he got that. Whereas he was 
running against somebody who positioned herself more as the establishment candidate, because that's who Hillary Clinton genuinely was. He didn't have to do anything artificial that way, but people were in a mood to blow things up. And to put that little statement in perspective, just look at what's happened since 2004. Let's look at what happened uh, right after I came aboard here as director of the Hallenstein Center. 2004, Karl Rove comes out and he's talking about a new Republican majority that's going to last you know, for the eons. And then two years later, guess what? The Democrats take over the House and Nancy Pelosi is the speaker. Two years later, we swing back and mood and reelect president or elect, I should say, President Obama, you know, which is an extraordinary election in its own right. 2010, the House goes back to the Republicans uh, because of uh, the Tea Party movement. 2012, though, our mood swings back to Obama and the Democrats. 2014, we move to the Senate becoming Republican. And then in 2016, there's an explosion of both establishments. So that tells you something, that we are swinging wildly between left and right. And Trump comes in and he says, you know what, I'm not going to be totally in the camp of the left or the right. Try me. And I, that, that worked so well. Two other little things for how he was able to pull off a, a, an upset the way he did. He relied on his instincts brilliantly because he realized that his tweets got him further than TV buys. Mm -hmm. There were millions and millions of dollars spent on TV buys in this election. Without spending a penny, he could get tweets out there and start a whole conversation. It's just amazing. And the second thing he did, he understood that rallies were more effective than the vaunted ground game. Now, he would hold a rally. He'd have, say, 25,000 people at a, in an arena, and those people would go home. And they probably dragged two or three people with them to the voting booth on November 18th. And that turned out, despite what everything the pundits said with all their big data and knocking on doors and that kind of thing, but it turned out to be exactly what was able to give him just enough to eke out a victory, an electoral, if not a popular victory. So I think there are a lot of factors that went into um, this election that, that made this upset possible. Trump just had a lot of things aligned for him. So, Gleaves, you're well, you're a Texan, but you're out there in, in Michigan and you're an honorary Michigander, certainly a, a noted one. What was the role of the Rust Belt in this election? Clinton, correct me if I'm wrong, Clinton lost a lot of the places in Michigan and um, elsewhere throughout the Midwest that Obama won twice. Why did, why did Michigan in particular turn toward Trump? Well, isn't it interesting? Joe, that the Midwest is now back at the center of our national discussion. It's back in the center as prominently as it was in two previous periods of U.S. history in the founding period when the founders were looking to the new republic and everything uh, to the north of Ohio and the east of the Mississippi River. And then about 100 years ago, 120 years ago, when people like Henry Ford were putting the world on wheels, uh, Michigan and the surrounding area, the Midwest, was at the center of our national debates. Then we went into a period of decline, and uh, there were a lot of questions after the oil Arab, uh, oil shocks, the OPEC shocks of the early 1970s. People were saying, well, well, you know, perhaps we have to totally retool our economy to be competitive. Factories started moving away from Ohio and Michigan and Illinois. Well, Ronald Reagan comes along at the end of the 1970s and he says, 
we have got to change that trajectory. We are not a has-been country. We are going to reassert our economic dominance. And so he attracted what's been called the Macomb County Democrats. Mm -hmm. Macomb County is that county to the north of Detroit. It's the bedroom communities for a lot of workers who at that time worked the lines of the big three. So the Midwest became absolutely central to American politics in the 1980s. And those Macomb County Democrats who worked the line were typically culturally conservative, typically Catholic. They went to Reagan and droves in 80. They went in greater droves in, in uh, 1984. Bush kept a lot of them in 1988. And then Bill Clinton came along as a centrist, and he was able to draw a lot of those Macomb County Democrats back to the party that had been their home, you know, since the, the 1930s and the New Deal of FDR. Well, I think increasingly those Macomb County Democrats have felt neglected uh, by the party. I think a lot of them were saying that we didn't leave the Democratic Party, really, when we gave it a second chance uh, after Bill Clinton. The Democratic Party left us. Mm. It has not tended. It has not listened. It does not come into our communities when national races are at stake and listen to what we're having to say. And this is especially poignant. Just go across Lake Michigan to Wisconsin, and you see uh, Mrs. Clinton never stopped once in Wisconsin to talk to people there. If she'd gone to some county fairs, it might have tipped the scales to win a, a Rust Belt state like Wisconsin. If she had been to more county fairs here in Michigan, uh, more factory gates, it might have tipped the scales. But she didn't do it. And the Macomb County Democrats, I think, played a huge role. But all this means that the Midwest is now reasserting itself in the national conversation at the expense of the Coasties. And we haven't seen that in some time. Well, it w was the assumption just that Clinton's camp just sort of had these Macomb County Democrats in the bag that they could just rely on them. And so she spent more time in other areas. Why? Cause it, it, in retrospect, this feels like just a fatal neglect like this. The loss of the Midwest was just absolutely fatal to, to her bid for the presidency. So what, what do you attribute that to? Well, I think the New York times told us in their mea culpa, when they apologized to their readers, they said, we weren't really tracking the story of the American people. We were in our elite bubble. And this was the problem, I think, with the Clinton campaign in particular, whereas Donald Trump was running a very populist campaign mm -hmm. and had his finger on the pulse of the American people out here in the Midwest. Mrs. Clinton tended to overlook it. She spent most of her time on the coasts and in those states that uh, are, were pretty comfortable for her in a lot of ways. So I think the uh, the elite bubble came back to uh, explode in her face. Hmm. So now voters knew almost everything about, about Trump. That is, they knew his dirty laundry. Um, they were reminded all the time of the sexist and, and, and racist things he said and continued to say. And they remembered there was that recorded conversation with Billy Bush they knew his record on taxes, and they knew he'd said things like, you know, if we have we, if we have nukes, why not use them? And yet, enough people cast votes for him to allow him to win the Electoral College. What does it mean that American voters would elect someone like this into office? A lot of people are saying, for instance, that mis misogyny has been normalized in American politics again. What's what's your perspective on on that on that question? Well, again. Since I'm sitting here in the Midwest, let me once again apply a Midwestern perspective. Let's take a look at those voters. Uh, now, just about 60, 70 miles from here uh, in a town that you grew up in, Lansing, Michigan, take a look at the 
say the factory workers over there in the Cadillac plant. Mm. I think a lot of those workers, say, that range from your age to my age, they probably are saying to themselves, you know, we need more economic security. We need a fighter. And they're hearing all of this background noise about how racist and sexist Trump is. And then by extension, they hear that they're called deplorable or that most of the people who are going to support Trump have this moral deficit of some kind. And I think the factory workers over there, at least from what I'm reading and from some of the people I've talked to, they're saying, you know what? I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. I don't have a gender bias. Now, my parents did. I'll admit that my mom and dad were racist, but our generation has made a lot of progress, and I don't feel that I'm racist. What I'm voting for is more economic security. And the fact that the, I mean, you, you, you know, you specified, of course, uh, misogyny, but I think that its, its twin cousin is racism. Right. How do you explain the fact? This is what I'm asking some of the analysts who uh, believe that uh, we have institutionalized racism and sexism yet again. But how do you explain the fact that so many of the counties, if you look at the, the polling and you look uh, at the exit, the exit polls and the actual votes, how do you explain the fact that these were the same counties that voted for Obama twice? Michigan had 12 counties that flipped toward Trump that had been Obama counties. So I think it's just awfully superficial to fall back on kind of a mono-causal, oh, you know, the American working class is really sort of uh, helplessly racist and sexist. I don't think that the data bear it out. So could you place, Gleaves, could you place this election also in some international context for us? So I think I remember when we were talking the other day, I remember mentioning that I watched... The election results come in um, with a bunch of uh, Brits, and the main point they were all making throughout the night was how much it felt like Brexit. Has nationalism and anti-globalism become an international movement, basically, and has America joined it with the election of Trump? That's a great question. I do think that what is happening in the United States is reflected in larger global trends. There, there's a worldwide movement, and Brexit was just the uh, the iceberg on top of the water. This worldwide movement's attacking business as usual. You know uh, some of the things you just mentioned, but globalism, free trade, open door immigration, uh, seeking a a more equitable distribution of goods in the digital revolution because you're you know you're seeing our population split between the digital haves and the digital have-nots. Uh, the historic election of Donald Trump with his more of America first agenda is part of that movement. Uh, let's revisit whether NAFTA was such a keen idea. I mean, this is the amazing thing about this election. NAFTA used to very much be a Republican issue, right. you know, free, free trade, North American free trade agreement. In fact, I was working in politics in the early 1990s when Republicans were all in for NAFTA and, and open borders. And a lot of the moderate Democrats were as well in the uh, Democratic Leadership Council that Bill Clinton was fundamental to, to founding. So he had Republicans and moderate Democrats want free trade, and Mrs. Clinton until recently was all keen on free trade as well. But people just viscerally were asking themselves along this I-75 corridor in Michigan that goes from Detroit up through Pontiac, Flint, Saginaw, they were saying, but wait, we lost so many jobs, and it's not just because of robotics. 
it's not just because of, you know, uh, say a, a, a brain drain out of Michigan when our young people are leaving. We lost jobs because of free trade. That's what they're blaming. So I do think that this is part of a, of a bundle of issues, uh, whether it's the open door immigration, uh, the digital revolution that we're seeing, but it's part of that bundle where a lot of middle-class workers are saying, we've been sold a bill of goods by the leadership in both parties. The establishment of both parties is doing just fine, but we're hurting uh, and their policies are taking a lot out of our hide. And I think that vote for Donald Trump is to say, look, we're, we want to take our country back and in a way that makes economic sense as opposed to being ideologues about free trade. I mean, what fair trade is what it should be, not just free trade. That's that's what they're saying. So it's very understandable. You have, a, I think, a large, um, a large body of people who have been hurt over the last 25 years, and they've had enough. So, Gleaves, I, I know you can't predict the future, but I'm just wondering, and you've, you've been suggesting your answer to this question, but I'll just ask it flat out. So how big is the election of Trump, really? And, and, and what I mean by that is how much will this change American politics, um, the way people run uh, uh, campaigns and the way people govern? But also, how will our role as an international superpower change, if at all? Well, this was a change election in a lot of ways. And this is one of the reasons that the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many others uh, are feeling a lot of shame. Because the entire time they were criticizing Donald Trump, they forgot to report on one of the biggest trends that was happening. And that is that the Democrats have been losing uh, ground. I mean, here you had this very um, compelling candidate at the top of the ticket in, in Mrs. Clinton, compelling in the sense that a lot of women wanted to see her become the first woman president of the United States. Compelling in that sense. Mm -hmm. But what was missing was the scaffolding underneath that was that needed to be in good shape to sustain a really strong election result. Now, the Democrats under Barack Obama, the Democrats under uh, for, for the last eight years, have experienced their worst losses since 1922. They've lost 11 net seats in the Senate, 60 net seats in the House, 14 net governorships, and almost 900 state legislative seats. This is this was unreported. Can you imagine mm -hmm. if the New York Times and the Washington Post had been reporting that and saying? We're in a long-term trend here over the last decade that's a lot more important to see than Donald Trump's latest tweet. But they never took their eye off the tweet. Right. So if you look at it, uh, what, what does that mean? It means that 69 of 99 legislatures are in GOP hands. Now think about that. That means that the Republicans are two or three chambers shy of passing or defeating any constitutional amendment they want. This has huge ramifications where you have really close margins in these legislative chambers. If the Republicans take, say, two or three more of those chambers, the Republicans might mount a constitutional uh, amendment drive that actually would succeed because it needs you know, a certain percentage of the states to uh, support it. So I think that's, that is a huge 
indicator of how powerful this election was and the swing toward the Republicans that's been going on for the entire eight years of Barack Obama's presidency. And it's one of the biggest reasons that the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, really should feel shame that mm. they did not see some of these trends and report on them so that the American people understood the longer trends that were at stake. Well, this this election, and, and we've talked about this before, Glees, but this this election has been so surreal in a number of ways. I think chief chief among those ways is is the fact that every day you would turn on the TV and it would just be another report on another tweet from Donald Trump that he, that he wouldn't have to pay for, right? He could just wake up at, at three in the morning, tweet something, and then dominate the news cycle. How how has his victory in this election? How do you think it's going to change the way that campaigns are run, for instance? And how and how do you think the media needs to sort of shift the way they think of newsworthiness or the way they, they approach um, coverage of elections as a result? Well, I think that the campaign manuals that all of us assumed had a certain logical narrative, a certain arc, having to be shredded because right. we have the traditionalist campaigns where you have a you know a really good ground game you have your donors that you always hit well Mrs. Clinton did everything textbook perfectly her mm -hmm. campaign had the right donors big donors they were raising money at a much greater rate than Donald Trump or the RNC they had the ground game in place in all of the states they had the media lockdown i mean look at the coordination even of how CNN, New York Times, uh, Google even, were in the bag for Clinton. Mm -hmm. They had done everything uh, you can imagine to prepare for her uh, ascendancy, or should I say coronation, you know, uh, all but counting the votes at the end. Uh, they, they really played the game by the traditional rules and excelled at it. And yet we wake up on November 9th, and Donald Trump's the president. Right. So, yeah, we've already talked about how important those tweets were over the media buys, how important the rallies were over a ground game, mm -hmm. and how Trump has revolutionized campaigning, I think, because he was a reality TV star. Uh, he was a celebrity who could capitalize on being known as opposed to somebody who had a, a political office or a military office prior to uh, his campaign. I mean, he's the first president who did not serve in the military or in a government post prior to running for president. So that's another unique quality of this election that made it surreal. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of Republicans who wanted to support him were thinking, ah, there's no way he'd have a chance at actually winning. He's just kind of fun because he's attacking political correctness and, you know, uh, throwing the bombs that I wish I could throw. That's right. the kind of thing, you know. So then what does Trump's victory mean for the Republican Party? You know, when when this election first got started and Trump was actually rising in the polls, a lot of people were saying this marks the end of the Republican Party because the assumption was that Clinton would win. Um, now, with Clinton's loss, it might mean that it's, in a sense, the end of the Democratic Party and, in another sense, the end of the Republican Party as we, we knew it. So I guess my first question about that then is what does – Trump's triumph due to the Republican Party as as we have known it? Well, parties constantly are challenged and have to reformulate what, what they're about and what their tactics are going to be to win elections. 
We saw this happen to the Republicans earlier back in 1974 when Watergate was such a plague on the Republican House. We saw it also after Reagan and Bush's three victories, 1980, 1984, 1988. That was the first time in 40 years that a single party had won three elections in a row, presidential elections, and that made the, the Democrats go into a tailspin. And that's why Bill Clinton came out of that uh, as one of the founders of the Democratic Leadership Council to try to say, look, we have got to, to revisit our first principles. We've got to quit talking about some of the themes that we've been pushing in the past. Uh, we've got to reclaim a mantle as Democrats of being tough on crime, uh, of being tough on welfare, of being more skeptical of government because uh, you know big government is not the answer to all the problems. In other words, Ronald Reagan changed the trajectory of the Democratic Party after 1988 in the same way that some of the Democrats changed the trajectory of the Republican Party. Uh, you had moderate Democrats, fiscal Democrats, uh, coming out of Watergate who um, were, were going to insist on smaller government and conservatives would be able to ally with them. And then you have uh, a period now that we've been going through, as, as I suggested earlier, every two years, it seems that we lurch either to the left or the right and we don't have a consistent course. This offers actually an opportunity. I think that both parties are going to be in the process of reformulating what they're about to some extent. The Republicans are going to be ascendant, though, for at least the next two years because they, you know, all the way through government, they are in control of everything. Republicans have been working their way quietly through, you know, city halls, city councils, state government, uh, governors and AGs, uh, through the Congress. And now they got the plum at the top. They got the White House. But uh, the Republicans did not get there easily. Donald Trump disrupted that Republican ascendancy, and it's forcing the Republicans now to go back and say, how can we work with this guy who in some ways is a big spending liberal Democrat? I mean, look at Trump. Trump, if you look at his instincts, I think he's got three of them, three defaults. Trump is very much a developer. He wants big projects. He's going to be like Theodore Roosevelt and having projects that uh, reflect his outsized personality, that reflect his development career of doing big projects that are flashy. That's why the wall appeals to him. But he also wants a trillion dollar infrastructure bill. Well, you know what? Not only will he be attractive to the Democrats because he has a big infrastructure bill, but there are some Republicans who are willing to trade spending some for infrastructure to get other things done like tax cuts. So there'll be a lot of horse trading in there. The second default in Trump's personality is negotiation. He loves negotiation. He's going to go out there and negotiate all kinds of great deals from his perspective that because he will have a Republican Senate, a lot of the, the treaties and the things that he'll want to do will probably find ratification. But he's taking America in a more America first isolationist direction. So that's also going to affect it's going to impact the direction of the Republican Party in the future. So here already you see two changes in the way the Republicans are going to come out of this. Probably they're going to have to be a little bit more eager to go along with Trump and big infrastructure and be willing to go along with his desire to negotiate better deals, as he said he would, and be open to ratifying those deals, even if it means that it, the Republican Party 
has to become more America first oriented. The third default, the third tendency in Trump's personality that will affect both parties, I think, is that he has coarsened the discourse in American politics to such an extent so effectively that I wouldn't be surprised if future demagogues, candidates, uh, adopt some of his antics and uh, speak more freely. Uh, so this could be a makeover in both parties that's very unattractive. We don't know yet. You know, gone are the days when uh, you had sort of the elder statesmen of the establishment police their parties. Now I think it's going to be wide open. We have Trump, uh, because he was so successful, in control of the Republican Party. The GOP is Trump's party. And the Democrats might find a corresponding voice that does something similar. So in those three ways, I think Trump is having an impact on the national discussion, on our parties, especially the Republican Party, but the Democrats are going to be affected too. Yeah, so let's talk about that then. What does, um, what does Clinton's loss mean, as well as, as well as Trump's victory? What does Clinton's loss mean for the Democrats? The Democrats have to go back to the drawing board. A lot of the energy in the Democratic Party right now is with Elizabeth Warren and with uh, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders got out there, and if the Clinton machine had not been so onerous to the Sanders campaign, if there had not been outright cheating between the DNC and CNN and the Clinton campaign, Bernie Sanders could have posed an even greater threat to Mrs. Clinton. So what they're going to have to do is keep all that energy in the progressive wing that's led by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, but somehow come back to places like Lansing, come back to that Cadillac plant, come back to the Macomb County Democrats and speak to them and say, historically, you belong to us. We do hear you now, and we're not just going to be in our elite bubble anymore. We're going to come out here and listen to your concerns, and we're going to shape public policy in a way that the middle class, the working class, benefits again. Because everybody believes the system has taken care of the folks at the top. The system, the establishment, has done a great job of taking care of of the haves at the top of the heap through tax breaks and you know, through their lawyers and accountants, they, they, the top 1% of the population is doing just fine. And the, the feeling in the middle class is that most policies have taken care of the people at the bottom. You know, they get welfare checks, they, you know, have uh, food stamps, they have uh, college scholarship opportunities that the middle class does not have. So if you start looking at how the top and the bottom are taken care of, again, this is from a middle class perspective, the Democrats are now going to have to say, we've got to take care of you in the sense of making more opportunity of bringing jobs back to this country. So that's what the Democrats are going to have to do, again, to strengthen the progressive wing of the party uh, with the f people they already have, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, and then build back that trust with the working class in the Rust Belt. What, what do you think the just in your view, what do you think the chances of that are? In a sense, the Republicans have little or no choice but to follow Trump's lead. Um, but with the Democrats, I mean, do you think that the that the leadership of the party will like the, the, they'll change their views at all, or and they'll willingly go to a more sort of Bernie Sanders model? I, I think a lot of people watching the Democrats would think, yeah, that they really must, as you say. But do you think they'll as willingly ch change so fundamentally? Well, as we saw with the Republicans in 1974, the Democrats after 1980, 84, 88, 
people are willing to change because they do want the votes. You have a huge superstructure of power in the Democratic Party, and it can only be fed through its donors and its votes by adapting to the, the people who actually go out there and cast those ballots. So they've got to change. And the Republicans should not get smug. They've got to keep changing, too. There, there are a lot of pitfalls that await the Republicans in the, the coming months. Do they overreach? Uh, do they get haughty? arrogant, feel that they don't need to talk to the same class of people that we've been talking about, the working class out in the Rust Belt? Uh, do they fall into a, a, a neo or say a, a renewed version of the establishment that leaves them uh, out in the cold? If that happens, the Republicans are going to be in just as much trouble mm -hmm. as the Democrats are mm -hmm. today. But the trajectory, I, this was a wake up call for both parties. This was, I mean, look at Trump's achievement. He ended the political dynasty of, of one party uh, by uh, upsetting one of the Bush competitors in the primary. He ended the political dynasty of the other party by ending the Clinton dynasty, or at least taking it, taking it down. It's on its knees. And it, it, it's a real question whether the Clinton dynasty will ever be as powerful right. again. So I think Donald Trump has issued a wake-up call, and the middle class, the working class that voted for him I think is signaling that they are going to be playing a role, uh, even though the demographics are, change, uh, are going to change, and even though the fact that uh, the millennials are now overtaking the, the baby boomers mm -hmm. are, is also going to change the dynamic. They showed that they still flex a lot of muscle, so don't expect them to go anywhere too soon. They'll, they'll be players in two years when we're at the midterm elections, and in four years at the next presidential election. A couple of things I want to go over, Joe, before we uh, leave this, mm. uh, we should say something about the Electoral College. The surprising results here, the extent to which Mrs. Clinton won the popular vote, you know, probably after all is said and done, million and a half votes or so, especially as all the uh, votes are coming in from California, and yet lost the Electoral College. There are calls, of course, to uh, abolish the Electoral College and make our country elect presidents in a one-man, one-vote basis. But there are a lot of problems with that, and you have to go back to Madison and see the genius of the founders before you start tinkering with it. Here's what would happen if we abolish the Electoral College, and I don't think it'll happen uh, that the college will be abolished, but this is what would happen if it were to be abolished. You would have candidates go basically to the top 15 or 20 population centers in the United States, and they would ignore everybody else. And they would raise their money there. They would have all their rallies there. But they really would not spend any time in a place like Iowa or New Hampshire uh, or maybe even much time in Michigan. Mm. They didn't spend any time in Wisconsin recently, but you know they, they could totally ignore it because – they're going to go to the population centers. That'll be the most efficient way for them to raise the votes. But look at what would happen then to the rest of the country. Outside of those islands, those urban islands, the rest of the country would simply be colonies of those islands. They would be largely unheard. I think the Electoral College is good because it forces these presidential candidates to get out into the hinterland and talk to the kinds of people who voted Donald Trump into office. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to please those voters, but at least they'll have a clue about what those voters are asking our public servants to do. 
when they represent them in Washington. And both parties, I think, uh, learned the lesson in this particular cycle that the establishment had gotten way out of touch. So the Electoral College was designed by the founders to create a, uh, a momentum for the victor. Because, as you know, we have in a presidential race, 51 elections. You have the 50 states plus the District of Columbia. So a presidential nominee is trying to win 51 contests to get up to 270 electoral votes. It can be a close popular contest and yet an electoral landslide. And the reason the founders did that was to confer legitimacy early on in the process to the winner. You know, mm. can, can you imagine... If, go back to Florida in 2000 and look at how we had to do recounts in that state. If it were a popular vote contest that determined the winner, can you imagine all of the local precincts where there would be demands for a recount? We would have our elections tied up and litigated in all manner of courts, possibly for months and months before a legitimate successor could be determined. So the Electoral College flawed though it is, confers a legitimacy pretty quickly onto the winner. And think of it this way for Mrs. Clinton's listeners. A lot of the talk before this particular election on November 8th was that, well, it could be a close, uh, close popular vote, but we know that Mrs. Clinton is going to win in the electoral college. Well, so the, the Democrats who are today calling for the abolition of the electoral college just a few weeks ago, we're saying, hey, it's our friend because she's going to get a massive electoral landslide and that will give her a mandate and confer legitimacy on her as mm -hmm. president of the United States. So let's just be wise. Let's slow down. Let's debate the merits of the Electoral College, historically speaking, before we start tinkering with that part of the Constitution. So I have another question. I'd like to get to the question of, of, of finding common ground in, in the future. But before we get to that, I just have a few more questions uh, about what to do right now. So so first, when when this election first got going, a lot of people in the center left and on the left, and we, we've talked about this before, um, said that there was just no way that someone like Trump could possibly win. He was a, a sideshow as a, as a reality TV show host. And they laughed it off. They literally, there, there are videos, of course, going around on Facebook and Twitter showing commentators just laughing at the prospect of even a Trump nomination. And yet, of course, it happened. So um, something happened that most of the uh, mainstream media thought impossible. By the same token, I'm wondering, do you think that the appeal of Bernie Sanders, particularly among millennials, might indicate that more Americans are actually becoming open to social democracy or socialism? Or do you think America uh, as, as a country it, it isn't, really, isn't really ready for anything that far left? That's a really interesting question. And I think that the polling that the Pew Group has done shows that millennials are more open to authoritarian forms of government, uh, not necessarily as supportive of capitalism as previous generations. This Bernie Sanders little mini revolution that we saw over the past several months might presage a shift uh, because the millennials are going to become the dominant voting block in the next decade or so as they actually turn out to vote. 
that might presage a shift in the, their views of uh, democracy and the way our system has worked. So I do think that that is an open question, that we have to be alert, listen to the millennials, what are they telling us, and uh, try to understand what they're saying and, and where they seek counsel and advice and teaching uh, that those of us who are in education can provide, be ready to provide it. You know, you, you, you actually addressed this question as well just a bit, but I'll ask it I'll ask it straight away. What would you say right now to people who wanted Clinton to win and who despised Trump? Um, what would you say, for instance, to, to, to protesters right now who are, who are saying, not my president and things like this? Well, American politics is very much like American sports. Uh, president Ford used to remind us of that all the time. The reason he loved to uh, read the sports section of the newspaper first and then the political section and the front section of the newspaper second, as he said, there's so much alike. You're reading about heroes and villains, mostly heroes, it turns out, in the uh, sports section and mostly villains in the politics section. But, but Ford understood that in both systems, both the world of sports and the world of politics as we know it. In both of these systems, there is a clear winner and a clear loser. It would be like the fans of the Cleveland Indians saying, well, you know, we, we really aren't on this Chicago Cubs bandwagon. We're going to march through the streets of Cleveland and then we're going to go to Chicago and we're going to refuse to accept the fact that the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. Well, that's preposterous. No one would ever do that. Same with Super Bowl contests. We're going to have a college football playoff here pretty soon. No one behaves that way. So for me, when I'm looking at the protesters, I'm saying, well, what exactly are you protesting? Are you protesting democracy? It sure looks like it because Trump won fair and square. The way to get back at Trump is not to have protests in the streets, especially where you're vandalizing a city like Portland and rioting in a city like Portland, which probably is so overwhelmingly supportive of Mrs. Clinton, that you're you're vandalizing the very people who voted with you. Uh, the way to get back at Trump, if that's what your intention is, is to organize, do the traditional American thing, and you know organize, uh, make sure that people are informed, be watchful. Uh, some of the students that I'm talking to are saying they're going to be hypervigilant. Well, that's mm -hmm. just democracy. Mm -hmm. Do they think they're the first generation that's hypervigilant? No. I mean, I remember the 1960s. In the 1960s, everybody was hypervigilant. The Democrats toward the Republicans, the Republicans toward the Democrats. That's the rough and tumble of democracy. It's not scary. That's just the way it works. So I'm, I'm a little bit leery of just marching in the street when I guess they did some exit polling in the uh, of some of the protesters in some of these cities that have been uh, out there. And in one protest, I guess, a fairly large one on the East Coast, I can't remember if it was in New York or Philadelphia, but 70% of the protesters who were polled did not even vote. Hmm. So, you know, you're thinking, help me understand, what exactly are they protesting? By the same token, what would you say to, to Trump voters who likely want to want to dance on, on, on the grave of, of Clintonism and, in a sense, the Democratic Party? Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. That would be really silly and foolish. That's the problem uh, in victory. Uh, you've, the Trump voters have to refrain from gloating. And my advice to them, this is my advice to the Democrats, is to just get to work, roll up your sleeves and do the hard work of democracy. There are no shortcuts here. Same advice to the Trump 
supporters. Roll up your sleeves and get to work doing the things that you believe in. Don't be gloating. You know, none of this nonsense about trying to put uh, prosecute Hillary and put her in jail. Uh, let's take a lesson from President Ford back in 1974 when he pardoned Richard Nixon so that he could go about doing the people's business instead of having this massive distraction. If, if Mrs. Clinton, say a prosecution of Mrs. Clinton, were to be on the evening news every night, we wouldn't get anything done. Now, actually, I could see that actually being a, a, a strategy of the Democrats to so distract the Republicans from getting anything done that and tying them up in public opinion over what to do with Mrs. Clinton, that it, counterintuitively, that actually might be a, a kind of a devilish strategy to, to, to entice the Republicans to do. But especially if you thought, if you were a Democrat, that Mrs. Clinton could survive the scrutiny. But seriously, no. I mean, this is what Republicans and Democrats do. They've always done it. It's part, it's the nature of our politics. We saw the rancor with which Herbert Hoover lost in 1932 against this upstart Franklin Roosevelt. And he wrote against Roosevelt for the rest of his life. That's just the rough and tumble of politics. Get over it and move on and persuade people the best way you know how in the ways that really count, that get people to organize, understand the issues, and go to the polls and vote. So, so Gleaves, you, you helped start uh, the Common Ground Initiative at the uh, Howenstein Center. It's the initiative of which this podcast is a part. What does the pursuit of Common Ground look like after this election. So I th this election has shown, you know, just how wide the gap is between the left and right. And, and the fact, for one, that so much of the liberal media got this election so wrong proves, perhaps better than anything else, that one half of the country lives in really a different information universe than the other half. W what do we do about that? What does the pursuit of common ground look like in a situation like this one? I founded the Common Ground Initiative in 2013, three years ago. And at the time when I was uh, giving our public presentation at the founding, I said that I think both progressives and conservatives are entering a period in which they have to redefine their tradition. You have too many new forces at work. Little did I know just how prescient mm -hmm. that would be. I mean, I, it, it's like falling off a log. I didn't, I, I don't even think I quite believed how much they would have to redefine their traditions. But this election certainly confirms the instincts many people have had, that conservatives are in the process of redefining what it means to be a conservative in the United States, and progressives are going through the same process. We have to. So our job at the Hauenstein Center, our role, our civilizational mission, is to protect the space for common ground. And there's several ways to do that. And this is what we're committed to at the Hauenstein Center. First of all, you protect the space for common ground through the rule of law. You do not resort to violence. You do not shout people down. You are respectful. You listen. You try to understand the other side. And to avoid this herky-jerky political system we've been having where every two years we lurch back and forth between the left and the right, we know that doesn't work. And the Republicans, if they try to be overbearing and go too far out there, are going to have the same experience when they're repudiated in two years or four years. Same thing's going to happen to them that they've done to the, to the Democrats in the last decade. So you respect the rule of law. You design policy around a premise. For example, uh, if you're talking about health care, can, you, can your original premise to bring everybody to the table be all Americans should have access to affordable health care? 
Um, can your premise be, if you're concerned about the national debt, that no Congress should lay taxes or lay debt, I should say, on the next generation, that, that Congress should pay for its programs as it goes along? Is that a moral thing to do? There, there are ways to find that premise, to formulate the premise in such a way that Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and progressives can sit down and hash out then the details, but keeping that aim foremost in mind. Uh, you protect the space for common ground psychologically. We know in our culture, for example, that if, if you say something to me and I roll my eyes at you, that is one of the most disrespectful things that I can do. Uh, this is one of the things that we teach our students at the Cook Leadership Academy here at the Hallenstein Center, the ways to show respect to people with whom you have major disagreements. That's how you're going to be able to get through a negotiation to a successful outcome, an outcome where you have buy-in from the other side as opposed to just hostility. And because you have the buy-in from the other side, your reform actually has a chance of lasting more than two years. And then, of course, uh, we emphasize uh, when we're talking about this space for common ground, we emphasize education. What happens when we have common ground and what happens when we don't? Well, the most extreme examples, of course, civil war. That's when common ground totally broke down in our country. I uh, could even argue that the Revolutionary War back in the 1770s uh, exhibited all the same features where uh, the, the two different sides, the, the Tories and the Whigs, the Americans, uh, the, the, the Patriots and the Redcoats, uh, the, the Brits, simply could not talk to each other anymore. So you have historical case studies that are important in this process. And then, you know, I just... I, I believe in the Electoral College. I believe in the Constitution because the Constitution, as designed by Madison and those 50-some-odd uh, people, the framers who met in Philadelphia in 1787, they designed a Constitution that forces us toward the middle. You know, when you have so many checks and balances on power, one party doesn't get to have its say again and again and again and call all the shots on every issue. It just doesn't happen that way. The citizens who form the big factions in our country will go back and forth, as we've seen in 2016. And that is a warning to both parties, to the leaders of those parties. Reach out to the other side. Our checks and balances, our federated distribution of power forces us to form alliances. Uh, we may see something, for example, in an infrastructure bill that comes out where Democrats and Republicans can work together because the Constitution allows that space to be created and allows the, price, the process of negotiation to go forward in a way that keeps domestic tranquility. So I can, I can only imagine the conversations you're having out there uh, in Grand Rapids with, with Ann and, and Chad and, and Scott and uh, everyone on staff. I wish I were there for them. What, what sorts of programs do you imagine for the coming year or so? How, how are you going to address this election, uh, its causes, its implications, say, for the Midwest and, and, and uh, for uh, political thought? At the Hallenstein Center, we're going to continue to do the things we've been doing so well. For example, we have a Midwestern conference that's coming up. It just so happens that the Midwest is at the center of the national conversation. So, uh, Joe, you worked on these conferences. We've had two brilliant conferences to this point, uh, thanks in large part to your work, your good work, and John Lauk's good work. We're going to continue to explore how the Midwest will be driving the national narrative. 
to discover common ground, to, to reshape the politics of left, right, and center, uh, even to reshape the political philosophies of progressives and conservatives. And we're going to be exploring that this coming spring. Another conference that we have every year, another conference that, series that you worked on was uh, progressives, conservatives. This year, we, we always alternate those. So this next year, we're going to have in May a conservative progressive conference. And we're going to bring in really bright people from the coasts and from around the Midwest. And they're going to discuss the ways that this election had a major impact on their research, the way they view uh, the assumptions that they've carried into the research and also their assumptions as citizens for how this country really works. I think we've all learned some things out of this election. Uh, at the very least, I think we've learned humility, that we have to revisit our most cherished beliefs and test those beliefs yet again. And we have to listen to what the other side has to say, because if we don't reach out to those people, Expect in two years for it all to be upended and the other side to grab it, the power that it can, and to undo all the work we're trying to do today. So we're hoping out of ConProg and out of the Midwest conferences, we're going to have really great dialogue on how to create and protect the space for common ground in the United States. Gleaves, it's been a pleasure talking with you. As always, I was glad we could, we could get a conversation on this very important topic. And happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, Joe. Happy Thanksgiving to you. I'm so glad we were able to reconnect at this time. That was Gleaves Whitney, director of the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast, as well as this week's guest, is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow HowensteinGVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.